Welcome to another episode of Hey Siri. This is Tom Siri, and I'm the Siri who goes much further than the phone app or device that you use to ask questions. I am so excited to have two amazing people today. They are entrepreneurs, they are married, and Jake and Deborah are really just fantastic people. They've started a great company called Fertility IQ. And we're just going to go into a lot of conversations today about, well, first of all, are you crazy? You started a company together as a married couple. And then really more into what the entrepreneurship path they've taken and as well as how they are really tackling a whisper topic that is similar to real self, which is talking about cosmic surgery. So welcome to the show. Awesome to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah. And first, I think it needs to be started out that you introduce yourself, like tell my audience more about who the heck you guys are and we'll go from there. Awesome. Deb, do you want to kick off or should I go? Go for it. Okay. Uh, you can correct me. Uh, <laughs> I always do. <laughs> yeah. So effectively, Fertility IQ is sort of an online educational resource for anybody who's going about the family building process. Our name is to some extent a misnomer because you don't necessarily have to be contending with fertility issues to get benefit from the offering. We really have sort of expert courses on adoption, foster, fertility treatment, egg freezing. That's sort of one hemisphere. And then the other hemisphere is we have patient-written assessments of doctors and clinics in the U.S. The reason, you know, Deborah and I decided to jump in and do this is we sort of had our own travails trying to build our family. We started the process going in there thinking, let's get ahead of the game and let's freeze embryos only to learn two things. One, that we're less fertile than we thought. And two, to come to the realization that we were making these sort of snap judgment, life-altering decisions with very little context and data. So that's a little bit about us in, in the site. Deborah, feel free to amend or expand upon. No, I think that's right. Well, I, you know, I think we've probably gone too far for the introduction. So I'll, uh, I'll stop it there. No, I, well, tell me more about yourself, Deborah. Like, are you a doctor yeah. or just a really curious individual who likes to go down the rabbit hole and research and being really informed? Tell me more about that, please. Yeah. So I am a recovered attorney, thank (laughs) God. And essentially after I ran from the law, I became a product manager at a tech startup in the healthcare space. And it was kind of during that time that we were going through fertility challenges. And at the time, you know, the fertility process was really taking up all of my life. And it was really creeping definitely into my work performance and my work hours. And I do like to really nerd out and really be incredibly well-informed. Jake will tell you it's insanely frustrating to like buy a television with me. Like I need all the information about everything. And, you know, fertility ends up being one of the most important decisions you can make in your life. I mean, an IVF cycle is twenty dollars to $30,000 a month that you're doing it. The success rates are low. And Jake and I out of pocket had spent about $70,000 with nothing to show for it. And at that point, we just felt like there was no good online data that was kind of meeting the need that we had. Speaking of buying yeah. TVs and how hard it would be to buy a TV with Deborah, Deborah, do you want to say why we are in the market for a new TV? I plead the fifth. No. <laughs> okay. No. Wow. Wait, I want to know the story there. You, you, Jake, <laughs> sounds like you're going to have to. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. Deborah may have gotten uh, fed up waiting online with our local hospital and, uh, thrown her cell phone at our TV and broken. 
I think I just saw a viral video about an LSU fan throwing something at a TV and people ridiculed him. So I, you guys got to be careful what videos you share online. The good thing was I, you know, I, I broke the TV right before the debate, which meant that during the debate, I could throw whatever I wanted at the TV and feel, you know, rest assured that I was going to get a new one. <laughs> well, it's nice you have passion, right? And, and that's what's driven your entrepreneurial spirit. I'm sure you have to have passion. One of the things that I'm just curious is, Jake, you didn't refer to yourself as a, a recovering or somebody who's run from something, but I do know you have a background in venture capital. So you, you've seen startups close up and seen the misery that can be associated to it or, or joy. But I'd just yeah. love to hear more about your background and how you also thought that this was a swell idea to go start up a company. Yeah. So what I did preceding Fertility IQ is I worked at Sequoia, which is a venture firm. And it was a great place to be. Sequoia, in terms of headcount, is actually relatively small. And yet they do have the ability to see lots of different types of companies and opportunities. And so, you know, even sweeping the floors and being the low person on the totem pole, I did get a lot of exposure to a lot of different sectors and businesses and approaches. And, you know, I think it's really just as you say, which is, running a business and starting a business is absolute chaos. Even though you think, oh, there's only so many people that work here and we're focused on just one problem. How hard can this be? You know, even in the companies that end up being fabulous successes, it can feel like enormous upheaval internally. (laughs) And I think that's one of the things that can kind of be the most startling for people when they start a company or they join an early stage business is just the amount of seeming chaos. And I think the thing that's easy to lose sight of is that is totally normal. Like that is part of, by definition, and it actually doesn't, I don't think necessarily correlate with, will the business be successful or not? Like I said, I mean, there are plenty of companies that I've seen, you know, Sequoia invest in that have gone on to do great things. But to the employees that are there at that moment, they're like wondering, hey, are we going to make it? And I think the reality is, is, even the things that go on to do great things when you're just a normal employee working there can feel like, holy Toledo, the wheels are flying off the bus here. I love that you both came together and created something that you wish you had and something that you, you know, was missing when you were exploring your options, doing the research. What have you seen for Tilly IQ become that you think is really different in the market and something that you see your members really resonating with? Is it the reviews? Is it more in-depth seminars and sessions? What, what is it that really stands out? Yeah. I mean, I think when we first started Fertility IQ, we were laser focused on the issue of how do we find a doctor. And that was actually because we actually started Fertility IQ about 24 hours after our second miscarriage. And we were in deep pain with the doctor that we were in. And so we were actually trying to build the product fast enough to find our own third doctor. And so essentially today, it's much bigger than that. But at the time, the premise was people need to hear from other people who are going through similar issues. Everyone has a very different fertility story and a gay couple really almost has nothing in common with an egg freezer in their 20s. They're on very different paths as far as the fertility process. And so essentially, we wanted to structure our reviews in a way that we've never seen online reviews before, which is, let me search by the people who are like me and then read their reviews. So I kind of wanted to hear from all of the other nerdy people in my age range 
a similar educational background and also a similar medical issue. And that's kind of where we started. And today, we also have added this much larger second component, which is bringing together the best researchers and scientists in the field and essentially bringing the science into layman's terms for people with our educational courses. And so today, the people who come to our site are about evenly split between choosing a doctor and getting educated. But today we educate 80 to 90% of US fertility patients, which is something we never imagined would happen. That's fantastic. One of the things that I think about is, is, yeah, you know, we really felt like we were solving sort of our own problem. And we were just a white heterosexual couple looking for a fertility doctor. I mean, that's really particular. And I think, you know, over the years, as things evolved, you know, we've come to realize at first it was all we thought about was the patient. The patient was always right. That was it. And as we started to build courses, we, I think, developed a healthy respect and compassion for the clinicians and we have probably more nuanced understanding of sometimes they'll make decisions that to the patient's mind may not make sense, but there's data on, in both directions. And so I think our sort of constituency and the groups that we have to consider have grown. You know, it's the last few years since we've built courses, I think we're more understanding the challenges that the clinicians face. Now that we make our offering available to companies as a benefit, I think we probably have a better understanding for the needs of the benefit manager, the people on HR. And somebody that was just doing fertility treatment and was a, you know, like I said, a heterosexual couple, we had one viewpoint, but today I think we've come to realize just as Deborah alluded to the needs of people doing adoption and foster also is pressing, but some of the mechanics and the challenges are quite different. And the challenges for a black or African-American patient may be dissimilar from a Caucasian patient. And so I think the number of groups that we've had to take into consideration and address is much, much bigger than the kernel of just us. I think for me, that's sort of been the kind of most startling, almost personal realization too, is that this is really beyond just the specific issue and problem that we faced, you know, five years ago. Thank you. That's great context. And it led me to thinking about the back to what you mentioned about how consumers are coming forward and sharing their experiences and giving it almost in a rating type style. And I know at Real Self, we get feedback quite often that this consumer, the doctor will, or the clinician will say, this consumer is wrong. That's not the way it really happened. Here's the nuance, as you mentioned earlier, Jake. Yeah. And we can't share the facts of the case because of HIPAA. Right. But this is an erroneous report. How does that play out in your world? Is it similar or is it a completely different situation happening? I mean, I would probably start by saying that we made a decision very early on that we've stuck to that it might be a bad business decision, but we felt like was the right decision for patients and for protecting doctors, which is that every single review, first of all, reviewers answer about 100 questions. They answer a significant number of questions going through our review process, but every single review is hand-read by a real person and a member of our team. And we have pretty strict standards about which reviews get published. Yeah, I think that that's really right. You know, to most doctors, they'll just see this assessment and think, oh, I totally disagree. And I, you know, in a lot of senses, we probably come to the same conclusion. Like Deborah says, we really try and help ride the rails for them of what a review goes through. So person answers 100 questions. They usually commit about a half hour. We then ask them to send a document that reflects they were treated at the clinic. We then manually read it. So we really put people through their paces before something shows up on the site. 
And we do a poor job of explaining that to doctors. Once we get a chance to have the individual discussion, I think the discussion tends to shift in tone. You know, inevitably, there are going to be circumstances where, you know, the doctor says, listen, I, I continue to disagree with what was up there. And we'll sort of say, hey, listen, we understand that. We'll go back and make sure we've done everything properly on our end. But by and large, most of the time, those assessments will stay. You know, we do remind people that one assessment obviously drives all of us crazy, but it does need to be looked in the context of all the assessments that you have. And most people, once they see the corpus and the body of assessments that have been aggregated, begin to think it reflects probably the histogram of what their patients think of them. And so I think it's important to have that one-on-one discussion and explain broader context. And most of the time, things end up being fine. You know, occasionally people are displeased with us. But it's our job to have those discussions with those doctors. Those reputations take an eternity to build. And so we need to respect that. Yeah, and sometimes the feedback comes in in a way that isn't always so pleasant, but I get rated and reviewed on Glassdoor. And yes, there are moments where I just want to jump through my screen and argue. But, you know, my grandfather used to do that with the TV. So, <laughs> so it runs in the family. But there's that humility or humble moment where you sit and have to actually absorb the perceptions that allowed that person to arrive at that opinion. And they could be completely wrong in fact, but in belief in their own perception, they've come to some other place. So that's often hard feedback to take, but that's the human nature. What we say is not always what others have heard. And we're in the feedback business. You know, I mean, we'd be crazy to say, hey, it's important for doctors to get feedback on their services and not receive and absorb the feedback that the doctors provide to us or patients provide to us. And some of it's very damning. You know, you commit everything to trying to do the right thing. And people remind you, not only did you come up short, but some of them will say you came up short and you're causing harm. And that's a lot to absorb. And so we can't bury our head in the sand when people are critical of us. You know, we may disagree, but oftentimes they have a really good point. And so we've kind of had to thin our skin and soften our skin to stuff where in most startups, we'll say, you know, give the middle finger to anybody who's got negative feedback. We try and not do that. Deborah, do you allow the consumer patient to post anonymously or do you require real identities to be revealed? This sort of is my way of bridging back to this construct that I call the whisper topic of fertility and infertility. Yeah, so so we went into this knowing that nobody wants their name attached to their review. Fertility can still be a, a pretty taboo topic for most people. And so essentially what we promise is we never put anyone's name or contact or anything like that near a review. However, we do show a lot of their demographic data. And so they'll be completely anonymous to you know a random patient who's coming to the site looking for a doctor. But if they had a pretty unique case, it is not unlikely that they will not be anonymous to the doctor. Like if they're an, of an unusual, essentially just if they had unique circumstances and the doctor reads the review, they'll probably know who it is. So real self, we have lots of subject matters that people just feel are incredibly personal. It's their own body. It's something they might not even share a concern with their own loved one about. In fact, when I started the business, the first thing I did was I had a focus group and a woman told me and told the group that we had assembled in our living room that she had had a nose job and everybody in the room was like, oh my goodness, that's amazing. You look great. 
And then she revealed that she had never told anyone ever before that moment, including her family. And everybody in the room was, of course, like, oh my gosh, you know, how is that possible? She goes, I just wasn't ever comfortable sharing this because of the way people would perceive me and judge me, in her words. And so I coined it as Real Self is a place where we manage and maintain a conversation community around whisper topics. And as social media has come on, of course, our topics have become a little bit more comfortable for people to share. But our recent survey we just did with our community showed something like 50% had said they still feel there's a stigma associated with cosmetic aesthetic procedures. How's it play out in your world. I would assume it'd be even more pronounced, but I, I don't want to make that a guess. I would love to hear from your expertise. Yeah. I mean, I think first of all, I don't think that there should be any shame or stigma surrounding infertility or going through fertility treatment, but that's not the world we live in. You know, I think that kind of stems from the fact that when people try to get pregnant, that's a very secretive topic. People aren't typically even sharing that they've been trying until they're in their second trimester. And so there's just this window where if you're not saying that you're trying, guys aren't kind of sitting around watching a football game saying, yeah, my sperm count's low. That's just not a topic that's coming up. And it's deeply personal. And I think both for men, for women, for trans people, I think it deeply impacts people's sense of identity. If someone has a low sperm count, if someone is having recurrent pregnancy loss or recurrent miscarriages, they feel like the thing that they were meant to do that society has told them that they're supposed to do as a man or as a woman, they're incapable of doing. And I think that brings about a tremendous amount of shame. Do you both feel like you're erasing or reducing the stigma or do you actually feel like, no, we accommodate it in a way that it's the world, it's the reality, and we really just help people work around that? It's a really interesting question. I think we really do try to accommodate it because I don't think it's not necessarily, I don't think our role to try to push people to, you know, reveal more about themselves. So Jake and I ourselves in our courses often get pretty personal. And I like we've even shared some of our couples therapy videos on the site, which are ugly. And I feel like someone has like a blackmail tape of me that they've published on the internet. But I do get a lot of feedback from people where they say, wow, that makes me feel so much less alone. And it makes me realize that I'm not alone in this shame or in this feeling. And it might be okay to share it with people. I agree with what Deborah said. The thing about sort of shame and secrecy that I think can even be even more startling is when people are considering third-party reproduction, which in our line of work typically means donor eggs or donor sperm. And there are a lot of people that are very happy to reveal to their children and to their family that that's the path that they use to build their family and feel great about it. But there are a lot of people and there are a lot of cultures where that's verboten and it will never be brought up to the family, may never be brought up to the child. And so for some people in our line of work, there is this secret that they hold on to maybe for eternity about how they went about building their family. And I had, you know, some suspicion of this, but as we're building courses for specific cultures, it's really become more apparent to me. And so I do in some extent sort of think that for some fertility patients, if and when they have a child, they sort of maybe move on from some of the challenges. But for some people who've built that family through third-party reproduction, they may harbor this 
fact that they're unable to share with anybody and be reminded of every time they look at their child. And that's something I'm only just beginning to understand now, but it's a serious and enduring thing. That's very interesting. I, I hadn't thought about the dimensions and the depth at which it's not just as simple as society has some trouble and hiccups about it. It goes deep into culture and religion and many other dimensions. And I'm sure cosmetic surgery has that as well, but I just don't think it is quite as the essence of life level. I'm curious your own opinions and your comfortable sharing about, I noticed a business called, I believe it's Kind Body, which is really trying to tackle the stigma almost and by, I would call it normalize fertility and the conversation or the consideration of infertility treatment by literally, I believe they drive a bus around the country, at least pre-COVID they were, to really bring it out there in front of everyone as opposed to it's in a you know hushed corners of, of the internet or inside clinics protected by patient confidentiality. What's your own opinion of Kind Body? And do you think that is a good movement, that's a good change, or do you have some concerns about it? I'm probably a little less familiar with the bus and sort of the mobile phenomenon and the pop-up nature. In a lot of ways, I think for people thinking about freezing eggs, bringing down price and accessibility, that's a, a major thing. And so that may be really important in that regard. For people that are trying to conceive and if it's not working, letting people feel like the concept is less taboo and, and more open is productive. And at the same time, there's a lot of sort of really serious subjects where you sort of need to calm your pace and sharpen your focus and so also having that environment where you can have the serious discussion with the doctor or take a really rigorous course that's really data-driven, I think that's also really important. And so I guess I don't have any strong feelings, but maybe it's because I haven't frankly seen it in my face yet. <laughs> I don't know. Deborah, do you have a, a point of view? I don't have a strong opinion about that particular brand. I do think there is a movement in startups of like a similar ecosystem in that space. And you know, it's complex. I think on one side, I think it's great to have the conversation. I'm shocked by the number of women who I talk to who are trying to conceive at 44 and they have just not realized what people's fertility levels are like at that age. I think there is kind of like a societal assumption that we have amazing smartphones and we have amazing technology. So like fertility must have advanced, but it really has not. And so I think informing people is important. I do think it needs to kind of be balanced with I do see a lot of the marketing as bordering on scare tactics for women and kind of getting them into this process, which I don't feel so great about. Scare tactic meaning time is running out. Yeah. like I, I think there are a lot of scare tactics that are really geared towards women thinking about egg freezing. And it's a really tough conversation because some of the scary stuff is kind of warranted and it's kind of true. But at the same time, the scare tactics can feel a little bit predatory to me. And then... The final thing I'll say about it is I do see in a lot of startups a really big focus on saying, let go of the taboo around fertility by getting fertility testing. And I think it's really a disservice to women because the fertility testing that's currently available actually has no correlation whatsoever to natural fertility. And that is not explained to people. Oh, that's interesting. Actually, I didn't know that. You sort of um, got toward a point that I have heard made in the past and something that I was asked to keep an eye on. And it's particularly in our category in aesthetics, there is a propensity 
or certainly a financial incentive to market on a woman's vulnerability and something that is really specifically, you know, something she is very conscious of is how she appears, how she shows up, how she compares to others. Is that what you're referring to with the testing and the way it's been sort of marketed is that it, it really speaks to vulnerability and is it a profit motive that sort of is chasing that? Yeah, I think there's two components. I think on the egg freezing marketing, I think actually there is a really interesting fine line that is similar between aesthetics, which is how do you market that in a way that's not telling someone that they look bad and that they have to get this to to look better. And I think similarly with egg freezing, you know, how do you promote the idea that it might be wise to bank some of your eggs for the future without telling someone time is running out, you need to get married right now and have babies and quit your job. And you know what Jake and I have noticed after five years and talking to hundreds at least of egg freezing patients, most egg freezing patients we hear from do it right after a breakup. Like That's when they're feeling it the hardest. People are in a relationship, they think it's going to work out, it doesn't, and they're left in this moment of, oh my gosh, what's going to happen with my fertility? Am I going to be able to have a family? And I just think we have to be very sensitive in terms of what we are trying to push that population into, especially, you know, egg freezing isn't a zero risk proposition and it's also a very expensive one. So it's not right for everyone. Just to put a fine point on, I mean, the cost to do a few egg freezing cycles, most people do them more than one. You know, we're talking $20,000, dollars $40,000. That's out-of-pocket pay like aesthetics, unless there's some oncological reason. And so post-tax savings, this wipes out a lot of people's savings. And so I think we're, like in aesthetics, really focused on the meaningful financial impact this will have for that person. So my background is before working in fertility at at Sequoia, I worked in cord blood banking. And cord blood banking used to be accused of the same thing, which is reminding people of the theoretical potential risks that their child may develop a blood-borne cancer and the utility of having cord blood if so, that happens. And I think this is where education is really important in, in drawing the distinction for people between relative risk and absolute risk. And so, you know, this is the important part of our courses where, you know, something could have a 1% chance of going wrong. And if you have the solution, you cut that odds to 0.5%. So go from 1% to 0.5%. That may seem like a huge deal. Oh, by buying our solution, you've headed off this major risk drop in 50%, when in actuality, you've lowered the risk from 1% to 0.5%. And I think sometimes putting things in absolute percentages so people really know the true context is crucial. And I think that's a major thing that patients kind of need to understand when you're articulating what risks are and how much you're truly assuaging those risks. I think of Fertelli IQ and what you're doing is, in fact encouraging people to slow down in something that should be highly considered and thought through and also think about all your options and choices and because you're making a big investment in yourself, investment both financially but also emotionally. And I once had a an awkward conversation at a cocktail party where a reporter said to me, isn't what you're doing at Real Self sort of reprehensible? <laughs> Which is always a Whoa, that's a big word. 
but I went to liberal arts college, so I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I know how to Google something. I know that word. In the sense that you're encouraging people to do something that isn't necessarily healthy. Do you ever hear that in the same context of your world, which is the blowback being if somebody's not meant to have a baby, they're just not meant to, and they shouldn't be playing God's work? Anytime the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, any publication publishes an article about IVF, about egg freezing, the comment section is just riddled with people saying, look at these narcissists, like there's babies all over. You can just, you know, just adopt. And I do think that people, when they say those kinds of things, they've first of all, not been through infertility or fertility challenges. And they really do have no understanding of what goes into the adoption process and how complex and also expensive that is. But there are certainly many people who don't think that people should be doing fertility treatments. Well, as a parent of two adopted children, I can say that once you do adopt, the feedback is, why didn't you adopt from our country? <laughs> and so we have children here. Why did you go abroad? And I'm not going to go into that now, my response. But yeah, the judgment, The I guess a lot of people feel like they need to be in your business sometimes. And it's interesting. I think that's definitely, definitely true. And I think, you know, likewise with the egg freezing conversation, I think a lot of people see egg freezing as, oh, you know, women are getting pushed into just working. And, you know, that we really don't see that as the case. I think the vast majority, like 99% of people who are freezing their eggs, it's because they haven't found someone to co-parent with. It's not because they're trying to buy extra years of their career. As you look out into the horizon or, you know, near term, do you see any breakthroughs potential in the world of infertility and or fertility treatments? Or you had made a comment that the science hasn't really evolved that much. And and I don't know a time frame, but it, it made it sound like there's not been a great breakthrough that's led to amazing success stories. It's complicated. I think if you look at, you know, to keep life simple, IVF is expensive and the success rates given the cost, you could argue, could be much better. You know, it wasn't that long ago, 10, 15 years ago, that IVF success rates were way lower than they are today. And the risks taken on to do IVF were way higher. So in some senses, the fields come a huge distance in, you know, a decade, decade and a half. I think we've reached a local plateau and a local maximum where, you know, the breakthroughs aren't coming at the velocity that they were a decade ago. And so, you know, there's not a ton of late or probably on the near-term horizon from a scientific perspective. From a business perspective, we've seen people try and extend loans to fertility people, drive the cost down. But in actuality, it's really at the margin. It's probably not making fertility treatment that much more accessible. And it's not improving the odds that you get a baby. And so we're, in my mind, we are, I don't want to say we're stuck, but it's probably going to be a while till we see something transformative. Probably long-term, the only thing that I think is really interesting is probably half the cost of IVF has to do with the laboratory, the people taking egg sperm, putting them together, growing embryos. And that's inefficient and it's manual and it's expensive. People are trying to automate that. If that gets automated well, there's a chance you see the prices go down dramatically and maybe the consistency prevail in terms of success rates. We see a lot of heterogeneity clinic to clinic. But you know that's really going to be 10 years off. So I think we're settling in for a holding pattern personally. I don't know if Deborah disagrees with that. 
No, I think that's right. I think if the lab ends up becoming more automated and we're able to all of a sudden start doing IVF cycles at an OBGYN's office instead of a reproductive endocrinologist, that would really democratize the process and and drive costs down so that more people could have access to it. I actually think on the other hand, I actually think some of the innovations have been detrimental to patients, the most important of which is there's been kind of a business innovation around egg freezing and having standalone egg freezing clinics that do nothing but freeze eggs. And they have wonderful marketing and they're driving high volumes and they they have nice prices, but they have no track record of actually being able to unfreeze those eggs, of being able to thaw them and have babies with them. And I really think that a lot of patients are in for a rude awakening in a few years when they try to go thaw those eggs. Uh, Well, I guess there is some innovation happening at the benefits level. You mentioned one of your approaches is to work with HR teams and corporations. Is it something that is common now or very much only led, you know, the wealthy companies, the apples and so forth of the world are now giving employees benefits around fertility treatments? Or can you talk more about that? Maybe I'll take a little bit more of that because that's where I tend to be spending a little bit more of my time these days. So 10, 15 years ago, companies to some extent covered fertility treatment, but it was at a nominal amount. It was very few companies and it was incredibly restrictive who could access those benefits. Either you had to be in senior level management or be a, a heterosexual person or couple. And today, I do think we're in a different place. Yes, we see the tech glitterati paying for it in banks and consulting firms. But I do think we are starting to edge over into broadline Fortune 500 companies. Yes, some of whom have senior level executives have this cover, but some also have, you know, normal rank and file employees and people working in distribution centers, just, you know, normal employees that get access. And we're starting to see a thaw. It's slow, but it's a thaw in terms of the hoops one needs to jump through to get access, lowering and becoming more broad. And so we can quibble with it could be better, it could be faster, but I don't think there's any disagreement of it's happening and it's productive. We can get into a discussion of, hey, why is your employer paying for this? Why isn't your government paying for it? Or should the prices be so high to begin with? I think those are all fair things, but those won't get solved anytime soon. And so I do think employers are are doing a much better job than they used to recognizing that this matters to their employees and that they should step into the breach. Yeah, certainly companies that are in the talent wars are having to think about the whole life experience of their employees and their families. And we're seeing that at Real Self where we've had a benefit associated with mental health coverage and access. And something that I think we just you know, had it on the shelf and never thought it would ever be used that often, you know, on the edges. But with COVID-19 and with my encouragement, I've seen a lot of people starting to move that direction of being open and tackling yet another stigma that we have around mental health. And it, it has opened my eyes to the thought that we should be thinking extraordinarily comprehensively about that entire individual and what their needs are in their life to, to feel both complete, but also supported. Yeah. Enlightened companies probably feel like, hey, it's worth the money to go and do this sort of thing. I do find it wondrous when a company like Starbucks, who I don't know if there's a talent worth for baristas, but if you work a total of 20 hours a week at a Starbucks for six months, you get $25,000 of IVF paid for. I mean, that's real money. And 
I don't think people have followed Starbucks as closely or to those extents. But if you look at designer shoe warehouse and a lot of retail companies, AT&T that have retail stores, they're making this available to people and they must justify it in some way. But I don't think it's solely based on war for talent. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I The caliber of employees at a Starbucks is pretty extraordinary and to their sort of model, consistently good. And I, I see that in other companies. I don't, you live in the city, so you probably don't venture too often into Costco and have massive purchases of toilet paper. But the store experience there with those employees is different. They are engaged, I guess is the word mm-hmm. I would use. So I imagine there is some level of benefits that associate to that to attract those and retain those type of people. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we're not here to talk about that, but it's a segue that... You I, know, I could might... talk about Costco all day. <laughs> <laughs> well, you need a TV, so you should probably check it out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Couldn't help myself. Sorry. I can't um, believe Jake outed me on that. No, it's okay. It's good. Oh, not only did Deborah, not only is the TV broken, but Deborah's phone was broken. I mean, well, <laughs> actually, was... that's from my first thought. That's the most expensive part and the most essential part. You know, you can live without a TV. I don't know about a phone. You know, the phone, the screen got replaced for twenty bucks. Thanks, Apple Care. It was amazing. <laughs> They're like people like you. We've designed this program. <laughs> this benefit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally. People with no um, imp- no impulse control whatsoever. <laughs> This seems to be a project and why I've just been so excited to watch your growth of your business and and the organic nature of it is I don't believe you raised capital. I don't think you went out and did a financing round from venture capitalists and so forth. But I'm just wondering, is that just because you want to do this as a lifelong project? Or do you hope someday that you'll move on to something new? Like what what is your outlook for fertility IQ? Maybe I'll begin and Deborah can add to it, but I think we find what we do to be real world relevant, intellectually interesting, and we think we've got a model where we can develop a pretty stable business. And so I think, you know, most people look at their jobs and, you know, they're lucky if they feel that those things are true. And so I think we find like we're in a lucky situation. And so I can't imagine leaving this job to do anything different. <laughs> and nor do I think anyone would employ me personally. So more of the same for some long period of time. And, you know, the decision to raise capital or, or not raise capital, you know, I think Deborah and I had a few feelings of what we wanted this business to look like. And to be honest with you, to probably resist some of the urges from a monetization standpoint that most venture capitalists would probably say, oh, you should pounce on that. And, prefer to avoid those sorts of discussions, you know, coming up every quarter. And so we felt like if we watched our expenses and did things in a certain way, we might not need a lot of money, couldn't do it all on our own. So we've had a few individuals kick in. And so in our minds, we have a growing business and in a growing field, but there's only a certain number of people that will do fertility treatment in any given year. And as a result, the market's only so big. And so I think when you get VCs involved in a business that delude themselves how big the opportunity really is, that's when things get really ugly. And I think we were mindful to be very honest with ourselves what the real opportunity is here and then retrofit our business model and our ownership structure accordingly. Those were our thoughts back in 2015. And I don't know if Deborah thinks I'm recalling correctly or or the facts have changed. No, I think that sounded right. 
the people who have invested, it's all families who have touched this issue or this issue has touched their lives. And that was important to us to just have people who get it and who aren't necessarily going to be pressuring us in the way that I think a VC firm probably would. Today, we're talking so much about you know, basically the idea of bringing a family together through giving birth and, and having a family through that mechanism. You know, as you think about your children and your legacy, what would you want them to say to their children about you? Is that too deep? Wow, it's great. <laughs> this is where it helps to have a co-founder like, why don't you take that first so I can <laughs> think of a better answer while you're tying Tom up? I thought you were going to say, this is where you really want to smoke a joint. <laughs> Just, uh, it's legal. <laughs> I mean, to take it to the not deep level, I mean, it's really, so our kids right now are two and four. And when they want to play family with us, they say, okay, good night, baby. I'm going to work because I need to help grownups who want babies. And so I think even though they're tiny, they do have a sense that, that they think that what their parents are doing matters to people. And I guess I hope that they'll remember that. I think it's really hard being a working parent because you miss a lot of stuff. And there is definitely like some loss there of not being around for every single moment. But I hope that they will tell their kids that we worked on something we were passionate about and that we were trying to solve a really big problem. Yeah. I feel the same way. You know, the school that we send our kids to, they deal a lot with talking to the kids about complexity and how it's possible to feel two things at once. It's possible to know two things at once that are different. And as our offering, like we hopefully it reflects those values, which is for a lot of things, they're not straight answers. It's possible to have complexity and not perfectly crisp data and answers that make for obvious decisions. And hopefully like our, our offering lives that and shows how differing opinions can both be right. And hopefully our offering reflects that we embrace the complexity. We don't see it as a sign of weakness that we can't give perfect answers for everything. And hopefully sort of how we're trying to build our family and build the site have those attributes in common. I think in the context of when we're recording this and the political environment, those are beautiful words of just people want things to be in simple terms and they just defy that and when you get up close and look at the reality. But what you're doing is just so remarkable. And in my mind, and I'm sure to tens of thousands of people who have interacted with Fertility IQ, what you do really does matter, deeply matters. And I think it's people like you who are bringing integrity and education empowerment to a place that is so essential to so many individuals and so many couples. So I have so much respect for both of you and I can only wish you incredible success that you've already had, but just continues. And, and I think your legacy is going to be sound. I think you've already changed the world, but you'll continue to do so. That's super nice of you to say. I think that is one of the nicest things. And obviously it comes from somebody that does a lot of great things themselves. So I personally, I'm really touched to hear that. Thank you. And don't tell them the TV story. Yeah. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, my audience is digital and listening to this on their phone, likely. Um, how do they tap in something to find you or find more about Fertility IQ? Easy. FertilityIQ.com. We're Fertility IQ on Instagram, but really, FertilityIQ.com is the place to go. And is there a way they can ask a question there if they want to learn more, or is it pretty self served? The website's pretty self served. And then 
but there's like a lot of engagement and discussion on our Instagram community. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming to Hey Siri and sharing your entrepreneurial experience. I don't think we really quite got into what was in your mind to be a married couple and start a company. But look, I did it with my wife. I stopped paying her. Actually, I never paid her. And so she quit. And so that worked its way out. (laughs) That worked its way out pretty quickly in the beginning. But I'm so excited to have you as guests. And thank you again for spending time on, on the show. Thank you so much for having us. The best way to reach me is just send an email to heysiri at realself.com. That's H-E-Y-S-E-E-R-Y at realself.com. We look at every single message that comes in and respond. And if you have feedback that's positive, love it. Challenges, even better. Want to be a guest, even more delightful. So please get in touch with us. Want to know more from our audience and what's working, what's not.